Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Hello and welcome to TGI Crime Day. Today we are talking about a fascinating case that is so well known and so historically talked about. I can't believe I had never heard about it before I went to CrimeCon UK. Maybe because it was a UK case and so it's not as popular over here. I don't know because I feel like I missed a huge thing, but I'm glad I get to talk about it now. I, like I said, had the opportunity to go to CrimeCon UK while I was in London in June, and I have now a whole list of UK cases that I cannot wait to cover. So for the next couple of weeks, we are going to be talking about the Great British Train Robbery. This will be in two parts. There is so much to go over in this case. It is a lot, and I don't want to skip out on all of the good stuff. So at CrimeCon, I watched an incredible panel about the Great British Train Robbery. It was hosted by John Watt, who talked with Nick Reynolds, um, who is the son of one of the main robbers, and then Chris Picard, who is an author of The Great Train Robber. Um, This case is about the biggest train robbery ever committed in London in 1963. This infamous case became so sensationalized, it was all anyone was talking about for a very long time, and I can see why. The team of criminals who pulled it off became kind of legends and sort of like folk heroes to some people. Also, I realized while I was researching this that the 60-year anniversary is actually coming up this week. I didn't plan it that way. It was just kind of a happy coincidence that I happened to pick this case the week of the 60th anniversary. So before we get started, just a quick note, I know that there are people who have done a great deal of research and know all of the ins and outs and tiny facts about this case. Like I said, it's been 60 years and we're still talking about it. Um, I'm going to do my best to cover all of the details of what I found in my Investigoogling along with the books and documentaries that I watched. Uh, But we could talk about the theories and all of those little nitty gritty details for hours because there are dozens of books and documentaries and articles about this case spanning the last 60 years. Anyways, please don't yell at me if I miss tiny details. I did my best. Put on your bell bottoms and let's go back to 1960s London. From what I read, London went through kind of a cultural revolution in the 50s and 60s. When World War II ended in 1945, Londoners were in a very devastating position. Britain had been completely bombed out, food and clothing were hard to come by, and families were ripped apart as men went to war and evacuations took place. The 1950s were a turning point, and Britain began to rebuild bigger and better than ever. People were full of hope, and as the 1960s rolled around, they were absolutely thriving. Unemployment was very low because there was a high demand for goods and services in manufacturing, and people wanted to spend the money that they had finally been making. At this time, the music industry was changing, with groups like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones topping the charts. Fashion was in my opinion, absolutely amazing, as people started to embrace the more mod style. Men's hair was growing longer, women's skirts were getting shorter, and everyone was feeling really optimistic and excited about the future of London. Time magazine gave London the nickname Swinging London, and it was widely known as, quote, the best capital city in the world. That is why it's called the Swinging 60s, which I love. Uh, It was also a time where consumerism was booming, which is, I mean, good and bad. Advertisements were being pushed out more than ever before because, like I said, people finally had money to spend, and they wanted to spend it on anything and everything that was in front of them. A lot of the luxuries in life were just out of reach for many people, and a handful of those people decided that they didn't care that it was just out of reach. 
they were going to go after those luxuries no matter what they had to do to get there. While things were going very well in London at this time, there was also a big increase in crime, unfortunately. And honestly, I want to do a whole series about the different mobs and gangsters that were ruling the seedy underworld of London. Uh, but there were bookies and drug traffickers and money laundering schemes and rival gangs with names like The Firm and The Syndicate, who were battling it out in secret and sometimes not so secret fights. Men with nicknames like Moisha Blueball and Sonny the Yank were running in violent circles of crime and everyone knew about it even though it was supposed to be a secret. It's fascinating and kind of terrifying. Like any good heist, you need a certain group with very special skills to pull off something like the Great Train Robbery. And here's what's honestly tricky about this case. On the one hand, people were shocked to the point of admiration by what these criminals pulled off. These men were romanticized and looked up to as vigilantes and folk heroes, but on the other hand, they're criminals, okay? Some of them were violent, and just because you want something doesn't mean you can just take it. And also, while we're talking about it, let's just call it what it is here. A lot of these men were very attractive. They had gorgeous wives. They were all very put together and dressed in these beautiful suits or dresses. And they were very charming and like likable. And I can understand why the public was so drawn to them because as I did my research, I was also finding myself like, these guys are very interesting and very cool. And I had to be like, Taylor, stop it. They're criminals. And just to clarify so that no one misunderstands me, um, I would never in one million years say any of these things about serial killers, okay? There's a difference between saying someone is attractive who is a thief versus people who romanticize and support serial killers, and I will never be one of those people. So please do not mistake me saying anything about these robbers as like one of those groupies that's after serial killers or making excuses for serial killers or ca calling any serial killer attractive, okay? I'm not, I'm, yeah, that's as far as I'm gonna go. I'm not gonna go on a rant about that right now, but it just needs to be said so that there is no confusion. This channel does not and will never condone romanticizing or like, you know, hyping up murderers ever. I just wanted to put that out there because we did need to address that a lot of people were very attracted to and very drawn to these men and not even necessarily attracted, but like in awe of what they pulled off and in awe of the stories that they told and all of these different things. Okay, thank you. Moving on. There are dozens of people who were directly and indirectly involved in this story, and so many versions have been told over the decades that there are loose ends that will probably never be tied up in a clean bow. This story has become a legend with truths mixed in to become an urban legend of sorts. So let's talk about the members of the crime squad that we do know were involved based on later convictions and stories straight from the men involved. It's believed that there were at least 15 people who participated in the heist, but only 11 were ever caught and convicted. There is some speculation around who exactly organized this entire thing, but the widely accepted opinion is that the main ringleader was a man named Bruce Reynolds. In his book, The Autobiography of a Thief, Bruce says, quote, Don't get me wrong. I wasn't always the silk-gloved gentleman thief relieving the super-rich of the odd, well-insured bobble or two, and I was certainly no Robin Hood. I was a villain. We all were, but none of us was evil, end quote. Bruce was publicly an antique stealer and privately a thief. Obviously, you don't just wake up one day and decide to pull off a huge scheme like this, and Bruce was a bit of a troublemaker as a kid, and his antics escalated as he got older. It started off with small things like stealing a few dollars from his stepmom's purse, 
then escalated to shoplifting and then to robbing a pub in the middle of the night, and it kind of just grew from there. Bruce had a taste for the finer things in life, and nothing was going to stand in his way. He was in and out of prison for theft in his teens, where he continued to be locked up with the same people again and again, kind of making those connections to more, unfortunately, seedy people. When he was 21, Bruce joined the army and his family was hoping that this would kind of be the thing that changed everything. Maybe it would get him out of trouble and change his course in life. In his book, Bruce talks about how he feels that there is no such thing as an ex-convict. Once you've been labeled as a convict, it's hard to shake that stigma and it's hard to not go back and repeat those same patterns. It only took a few days of Bruce being in the army for him to decide that it definitely was not for him and he deserted and started his life as a career criminal. Again, he was in and out of prison for a few years. He essentially became an expert thief. He rubbed elbows with the big crime bosses who were running the underworld of London. Bruce was whining and dining at the most expensive, fancy places and was constantly on the hunt for what he called his El Dorado. When the time came for them to pull off the train robbery, Bruce said he felt like he had finally found his own El Dorado. Bruce definitely had one of the biggest parts in the heist. He gathered most, if not all, of the other heist members. Some of them he had known since childhood. Others were people he met in his 20s while he was in prison or just because they ran in the same crime circles. Bruce's partner in crime was a man named Harry Booth, and as more gangs started popping up, they realized that they would need more than just the pair of them to pull off these bigger jobs. While gathering the gang, Bruce said he didn't want anyone who was a hothead or a hero, or the type to panic at the first sign of trouble. Bruce met a man named Buster Edwards at a club one night, and Buster was a former boxer and also a club owner himself. He'd been working the criminal scene for a while and introduced Bruce and Harry to a man named Gordon Goody. And interesting fact, there was a movie that came out in 1988 about Buster that is described as a British romantic crime comedy drama. It's a lot of adjectives, um, but it starred Phil Collins as the main character, Buster, who was one of the train robbers. Fascinating. I would like to watch that movie. If you've seen it, please let me know. Like I mentioned, Buster introduced them to Gordon Goody, and Gordon eventually became Bruce's right-hand man, a term that Gordon didn't love. He once said, quote, I do not take exception to being referred to, as I have been from time to time, as Bruce's number two. I wasn't number two to anybody, end quote. A lot of the documentaries and articles about the train robbery say that Gordon worked as a hairdresser, but he had only ever invested stolen money into salons. So if you ever read that fact somewhere, just know he was not a hairdresser. He was an investor in hair salons, and he had a reputation as a skilled thief, and he had the wardrobe of bespoke suits and expensive watches to prove it. By age 33, Gordon was a career criminal with years of prison time under his belt, and he once said, quote, My old man wanted me to be a plumber's mate. I wanted to be a criminal. You never have to work hard to be a criminal. You do something, see something, you have no money, you take it, end quote. Along for the ride with Buster and Gordon was Charlie Wilson, who Bruce had known for years and had done some jewel thieving with. Charlie had been caught with explosives and was put in prison for a few years, but Charlie, Buster, and Gordon had been robbing banks together, and eventually Bruce and Harry teamed up with them to do some bigger jobs, including robbing a bank car that was transferring money. This particular crime led to Bruce gaining a bigger reputation in the crime world, and people were really interested to see what he could pull off. Charlie was also the person given the job of treasurer in the Great Train Robbery. He would basically be the one to divide up all of the money that they stole between all of the robbers and make sure everyone got a fair cut. Roy James, whose nickname was Weasel, was a silversmith and a very talented race car driver. He had won a bunch of races and was headed for a World Cup championship, with many companies begging him to sign to their teams. 
On the side, he was pulling off petty crimes. Roy wasn't afraid to take risks, and he got multiple warnings in his races for how dangerously he would drive, which, as you can imagine, made him the perfect getaway driver. Ronald Arthur Biggs, aka Ronnie Biggs, was one of the people Bruce met during his time in prison, and they became great friends. Ronnie enlisted in the Royal Air Force when he was 18, but was dishonorably discharged after he broke into a chemist shop. Shortly after that, he was arrested for stealing a car, and then after Ronnie served his time for the car theft, he got arrested again in an attempted robbery of a bookmaker's office. He decided that that would be his final prison sentence. He decided it was time to get his life together and leave crime behind. And he did, for a time, leave the crime business behind to become a carpenter. He married a woman named Charmaine, and together they had three kids. Ronnie's wife was featured quite a bit in one of the documentaries that I watched. She's kind of a badass, and I, like, I love her attitude. Um, Charmaine knew about Ronnie's past, and she said, quote, I'd extracted a promise from him when he married me that he would never engage in any criminal activity ever again. And he gave me his word, and I believed him. And I think he meant it at the time, end quote. She also went on to say, quote, For a long time, I believed that he did this with a view of benefiting his family, end quote. And Charmaine was, of course, referring to Ronnie's later involvement in the train robbery. And Ronnie was kind of a random addition to this robbery, actually, because Bruce just happened to get in touch with him. They were just catching up, reminiscing about the good old days, swapping stories. And from what Bruce could tell, Ronnie really wasn't up to anything criminal at this time. They started talking about Ronnie's work as a builder. And at that time, Ronnie happened to be working on the house of a train driver and Bruce's ears perked up. They'd been looking for an experienced driver to help them with the robbery. And he asked Ronnie if he thought that this guy would maybe be interested in being part of the heist. Ronnie said that he could make it happen. And at that point, Bruce told Ronnie that they would give him 50,000 pounds just for helping to connect with this driver and that Ronnie didn't need to be involved in it any further than that. But whether Ronnie just kind of got that itch to be involved in something exciting or if he genuinely wanted the money to buy a house for his family, he was very excited and wanted to play. 50,000 pounds was a lot of money and he wanted more. He wanted to be part of the huge, insane thing they were trying to pull off with this heist. So Bruce decided that he could be in on it. Ronnie introduced Bruce to this train driver he was working for, whose actual identity has remained a mystery this entire time. He's never been caught. They just referred to him as Stan Agate or Old Pete sometimes. But his true identity has never been revealed. A man named Brian Field seems to be the sort of inside connection the gang needed to pull off the train robbery. Brian was working as a solicitor's managing clerk, and from what I understand, he basically worked for a law firm, so he knew all of the behind-the-scenes stuff and had connections to a lot of different people. Some good, some not so good. Brian was very well off and made great money, and one of the articles that I read about Brian says that he was so wealthy because, quote, he was not averse to giving some of his less savory clients good information on what some of his wealthier clients had in their country houses, making them prime targets for the thieves. Another key reason being that an honest solicitor was useless to a career criminal of that era. What was needed was a bent solicitor who could arrange for alibis and friendly witness statements and bribe police and witnesses. As the managing clerk at his law firm, Field was able to carry out these activities and encourage repeat business, end quote. It's believed that Brian was actually the one who brought in this mysterious insider known only as the Ulster Man. This mystery man worked for the Royal Mail Company and could tell the gang all the inside knowledge on how to pull off this train heist, and we'll talk more about the Ulster Man later on. Brian was also tasked with finding a hideout for them to use to lay low after the robbery, as well as cleaning up the hideout when they all fled. 
James Husey, aka Big Jim, was working as a house painter and decorator, and from what I understand, he was brought in to sort of add some muscle to the gang. He was an experienced criminal who wasn't afraid to tie people up as he saw needed. Bruce said that he'd heard a story about Big Jim carrying two night guards, one under each arm, out of a building during a robbery. Like I said, muscle. Roger Cordry was a florist living in Brighton when he found himself in a huge amount of debt because of his gambling problem. Roger was a former railway worker. He knew all the ins and outs of how they could get the train to stop. And Roger founded a gang of train robbers called the South Coast Raiders. Bruce had heard about his quote-unquote skills, including the fact that he was great with technology, so Roger was given the task to rig the railroad signal um, that would cause the train to stop on the night of the robbery. Jimmy White was actually already on the run when he joined in on the train robbery, and Jimmy was known as a thief who worked on his own. He was a master at picking locks, and he had former paratrooper military training. Jimmy had, quote, a remarkable ability to be invisible, to merge with his surroundings, and become the ultimate Mr. Nobody, end quote. Jimmy is also referred to as the quartermaster of the robbery, and if I understand correctly, this meant that he was in charge of gathering food and clothing and supplies, bedding, things like that, anything that the robbers would need during their hideout. Tommy Wisby was a newer member of the gang. He was a money-hungry bookie who came from a very hardworking family. Tommy was described as a gentle giant, but he was, quote, the strength behind the South Coast Raiders. Tommy said that he watched his dad work really hard day in and day out, and in his mind, it never seemed to pay off. He said in a documentary, quote, I was the only black sheep of our family. They were all hardworking people, end quote. Tommy's daughter Marilyn said, quote, he wanted that pot of gold, and that pot of gold he found, end quote. Tommy was again more muscle for the gang, one of the men who was meant to intimidate and keep the train workers quiet. John Daly was an antiques dealer and was married to Bruce Reynolds' wife's sister, so he was Bruce's brother-in-law. He was one of the getaway drivers. Bruce referred to John as his lucky charm. Bob Welch, who had the nickname Big Bad Bob Welch, is another one of the robbers that is a little hard to find information on. As far as I can tell, he was one of the members of the South Coast Raiders and was brought along to act as extra hands and, again, that muscle for intimidation. And then to this day, there are still a few of the robbers that managed to kind of sneak through the cracks. They were associates of associates to some of the other robbers that essentially were there to just, again, add more muscle, be intimidating, and be extra hands. They are known by the aliases Bill Jennings, Alf Thomas, and Frank Monroe. And as far as I have been able to tell, none of these three have ever been tracked down or specifically identified in connection to this robbery. Now that the team was put together and everyone had been given their specific jobs, it was time to take their plan into action. And let's go over a quick rundown of the Royal Mail train and why they wanted to rob this particular thing. The Royal Mail train was essentially a traveling post office based on what I've read. The train would travel from Glasgow Central Station to Euston Station in London and along the way, it would pick up mailbags from local post offices, um, and depending on the station, they would either stop and load the bags, or the bags would be hung up on these hooks, and the train workers would use a big net to just grab the bags to save time. <laughs> Seems like an insane system, but it worked. The workers on the train would sort the mail and drop it at the correct stops. At the same time, they would pick up the next bag, and so on. So it's essentially a portable post office. The Royal Mail train was made up of 12 carriages and had 72 post office workers on board. The second carriage behind the engine was called the HVP, which means high value package car. This car carried large amounts of money and important registered mail. 
This was like the pinata car where all the most important goodies were kept. Like I said, along with picking up regular mail from the post office, the train was also picking up huge bank bags full of cash. In one of the documentaries I watched, one of the robbers talked about how they knew that this would be a great robbery to go after because the banks were essentially doing what the public was constantly warned not to do, which was sending cash in the mail. The use of trains for the post office was implemented in 1830 because it was a much quicker and more efficient way to deliver and sort the mail rather than having horse carriages or eventually cars and trucks. And for over 100 years between the start of the Royal Mail Train and the night of the robbery in August of 1963, there had never been this major of a train robbery. So they were like, our system is great. We have no problems. No one tries to rob us and it works really well. However, that would change. I'm assuming that with the rise of general crime, like I talked about in the beginning of this episode, they decided it was time to make some updates to how they were protecting the HVP car. Just three years earlier in 1960, the post office investigation branch suggested that it was time to add alarms to the HVP car at the very least. This was implemented in 1961, along with adding bars to the windows and bolts and catches on the door to make the HVP carriage um, a lot safer and more difficult to break into. The post office investigation branch also suggested adding radios to the cars so that if anything ever did happen, they could quickly get in touch with the police. Uh, that suggestion was not taken because they were deemed too expensive. So about two years before this robbery took place, these cars were given like a big overhaul and made more difficult to break into and were given more security. However, in this situation, none of those safety measures made a difference because in a very interesting turn of events, and again, something that shows that an insider gave these guys a lot of very important information, the HVB car with its alarms and bars on the windows and safety measures was out of service and having maintenance done. So that meant the old reserve carriages were temporarily being used with no security, no alarms, no bars on the windows. It's not a coincidence. And I want to know who it was that told them this. At 6.50 p.m. on August 7th, 1963, the Royal Mail train started its route from Glasgow to London. Meanwhile, at a farmhouse in Buckinghamshire, the robbers were going over their plan again and again and again. They put on railway worker type boiler suits, which are basically just coveralls and balaclavas or masks, and some of them wore gloves. They didn't ever use guns. They were armed with iron bars and things like that, weapons that were supposed to be used for intimidation and not actually used for violence. They were prepared with walkie-talkies to communicate with each other, and they had a radio scanner so they could keep track of what the police were doing. For their getaway cars, they had one army-type truck and two Land Rovers. The army truck was chosen because they knew that none of the locals would question an army truck parked on a bridge in the middle of the night. The army truck was parked on Brigado Bridge, close to where they planned to stop and board the train. All prepped and ready, the robbers headed out into the night, ready to meet their destiny, aka Bruce's Eldorado. So they parked the truck up on the bridge, and then Bruce and one other robber waited in a Land Rover nearby to give the signal to stop the train. The rest of the robbers were waiting by the tracks at Sears Crossing between Leighton Buzzard and Cheddington. They stood waiting, buzzing with energy, smoking cigarettes, waiting for the train to come. Finally, Bruce gave the signal over the walkie-talkie from up the hill, and after months of planning, it was time. Around 3 a.m., just an hour away from the final stop in Houston, the train came to the robbers' planned stop. It's hard to say who exactly tampered with the train signal, but from what I read, it sounds like it was Roger Cordry, who was good with technology and a former railway worker. When some of the other gang members questioned if they could actually get the train to stop at an unplanned light, Robert assured them that it was protocol for the driver to stop 
at a red signal no matter what, even if it was an unexpected stop. Roger was able to rig the train signal by covering the green light with a glove, and then he rigged a battery to power the red light. Just as they planned, the train stopped. The train's fireman, who is basically the second-in-command, a 26-year-old man named David Whitby, jumped out of the train to check the signal. He attempted to call the signalman from the line-side phone, but the robbers had cut the phone lines, so they were essentially out there on their own. As David made his way back to the train, the robbers stormed in from both sides. And here is where the perfectly laid plan went up in smoke and things changed very quickly. Whether someone was a loose cannon or the adrenaline took over, whatever happened, what was supposed to be a non-violent robbery that was said from day one got out of control really quickly. And to this day, I don't think they've ever actually confirmed who it was that got violent. It's kind of believed that one of the three unnamed men um, who was never caught for the robbery was the person who did this, but one of the robbers attacked the train driver who was a 57-year-old man named Jack Mills. Jack was hit hard over the head with an iron bar. He suffered a major brain injury, um, a black eye, and facial bruising. So during the storming of the carriage, two of the other robbers unhooked the HVP carriage from the rest of the train, and the plan was that they would have their own driver, this mystery man known as Stan Agate, Um, He would drive the HVP carriage a half mile down the track to Brigado Bridge, where the army truck was waiting. However, another thing didn't go as planned. Stan was a retired driver. He wasn't familiar with the new technology of the updated engine that they were in, and so the other robbers basically kicked him off the train, along with Ronnie Biggs, who invited Stan. Those two were sent to meet up with Bruce waiting at the bridge, and since Stan couldn't drive the train, they then forced Jack Mills, who had just been hit over the head, and was semi-conscious, they forced him to drive the train to the planned spot. So they just unhooked the engine and that first car from the rest of the train, left the train sitting there, and then had Jack drive them about a half a mile away to the bridge where the army truck and the Land Rovers were waiting. Things were back on track once Jack stopped the train at Brigado Bridge, where they hauled bag after bag of banknotes off of the train to the waiting getaway cars. There were four men working in the HVP coach, Leslie Penn, Joseph Ware, John O'Connor, and Thomas Kett. There was no security guard, and like I mentioned earlier, the idea of adding a radio to the train for emergencies had been denied. Supposedly, there were no other major violent actions taken against them, at least not to the extent of Jack Mills. The workers were outnumbered and forced to lie face down in the corner of the carriage. Jack Mills and David Whitby were brought to this carriage and then handcuffed together while the robbery took place. And let's uh, pause and talk about this really quick. The majority of the robbers who have done interviews and written books and things like that over the years all express great regret that Jack Mills was injured. They had all agreed that no one would get hurt. They didn't plan to attack anyone. And while they eventually reached this rock star fame, this thieving lifestyle was glamorized and the men were so charismatic and likable, people just kind of ignored the fact that even though these men were allegedly nonviolent, they were still criminals. And the people that were on the train being robbed and in their other heists were intimidated, tied up, etc. These people had no idea if their lives were in danger or not, whether or not their intention was to be violent. Not only that, but Jack Mills and the rest of the men working on this train were also just working men trying to provide for their families. They weren't rich businessmen with, you know, diamond shoes and houses made of gold or whatever. They were just regular people trying to do their jobs and get by, and they didn't deserve to live through something so terrifying, fearing for their lives, no matter what the intentions of the violence were. You know what I mean? In one of the documentaries that I watched, 
um, the author of The Great Train Robbery, Nick Russell Pavier, said, quote, If it was going to be your brother on the train, or your husband, or a friend of yours, and they were brutally attacked like that and terrified, would you think these guys were cool? Would you think they were heroes? I don't think you would. End quote. Perfectly said. Bruce himself even said, they weren't Robin Hoods. They weren't the heroes of the story. They were the villains. However, even with the injuries that Jack Mills suffered, people still made excuses for them and treated them like they were these cool guys, like vigilante boys in their reputation era. And again, like I mentioned at the top of the episode, I'll be totally honest, it's kind of hard not to fall into liking these guys. It's a very tricky, morally gray area, and that's awful, and you can't make excuses there, but the Hollywood-style heist parts are fascinating, and that's why people are so drawn to these men. But there's absolutely no excuse for the violence that took place on the train that night. Anyways, back to the robbery. So they had Jack and David handcuffed and the other four men were laying face down in the corner as they made a human chain to get these huge bank bags off the train. As they piled more and more and more into the backs of the Land Rovers, I think it hit them just how much money this was. Usually the amount of money carried in these trains was around 300,000 pounds, But because the previous weekend had been a bank holiday, the actual total was much higher than usual, closer to around 3 million pounds. They were given that tip from their inside man to wait until that date because the sum of money that would be on the train. And that particular tip actually made some of the robbers really suspicious. They wondered if they were being set up because it sounded too good to be true. But as they carried all of those bags off the train... They were thrilled because their tip had been correct. They removed 128 mailbags full of money and they left behind eight bags. I'm not sure why, if that was because they ran out of time or they ran out of room, but there were a few bags that were left behind. They planned this so meticulously and only allowed themselves 30 minutes from the time the train stopped to loading the bags to getting the hell out of there. Any more than 30 minutes and someone could come along, another train could come, etc. So they gave themselves 30 minutes and they pulled it off. One of the men had gotten both of the Land Rovers the same fake license plate numbers, BMG757A, so that they could throw off any potential witnesses. They told the railway workers to stay in the carriage for 30 minutes, and they made their getaway. They drove the army truck and two Land Rovers down back roads, being as discreet as possible. They listened, waiting nervously to hear a police broadcast on a VHF radio, but on the drive back to their hideout, there was still no word of the robbery. It wasn't until 4.30 a.m. when they were 27 miles away from the site of the robbery, tucked away at Leatherslade Farm near Brill in Buckinghamshire, that the first radio alert went out on the robbery. Quote, a robbery has been committed and you'll never believe it. They've stolen the train. End quote. Leatherslade Farm was the perfect hideout for the gang. Bruce had looked into properties a few months before the heist, and when he visited Leatherslade Farm, he knew he wanted it. It was the only major farm in the area that wasn't listed on any map. It was out of the way, tucked behind a bunch of trees, and there was only one narrow road to enter the farm. The perfect place to lie low after you pull off a huge heist. Once he found Leatherslade Farm, Bruce handed things over to Brian Field, who worked for that firm I mentioned before, and his boss, John Denby Weeder, agreed to have one of their clients purchase the farm for 5,500 pounds. 
Two of John's clients agreed to this deal for a cut of the robbery haul, even though they didn't quite know what they were signing on for. After removing the money from the train, the robbers got to Leatherslade Farm without any incident, and they began to divide up the money into 16 large portions and a few other smaller portions for those quote-unquote associates that they now owed money to. They were on top of the world, celebrating, cheering, playing Monopoly with real money that they had just stolen from the heist, which I'm sorry, I know, don't glorify it, but that's pretty rock and roll, okay? What they did is wrong, there is no denying that, but there is something so Hollywood about the idea of them playing Monopoly with real money. It's just like a great scene in a movie in my head. As they celebrated and counted in their loot and probably, you know, rolled around in all of the cash, they heard something over the police radio that gave them pause. They found out that a search was being done in a 30-mile radius from the train tracks. Apparently, one of the workers suggested that because they told them not to move for 30 minutes, they were most likely going to hide out somewhere within a 30-minute drive. That guy was smart and right on the nose with that guess. The first task for the banks was to figure out exactly how much money had gone missing. The original number was reported as a couple hundred thousand, and then it just kept going up and up and up as they figured out how much was missing. This also threw a wrench into their plan. The robbery was done early Thursday morning, and the original plan was to lay low for a few days and then split up on Sunday. But because this sum of money was so huge and this crime was so outrageous, it immediately made headlines and then went international. Within 24 hours, it was all anyone was talking about, so they knew that they had to move quickly if they were going to get out of there. The final tally of the money that they stole from this train was 2 million 595,997 pounds, which is the equivalent of about 61 million pounds in 2023. 61 million pounds, which is about 77.6 million in U.S. dollars. 77 million dollars stolen off a train in the middle of the night. Can you see why everyone was so obsessed? Each robber ended up with about 150,000 pounds, which today is equivalent to about 4.4 million pounds, if my calculations are correct. In conclusion, it was a shitload of money, okay? This was insane. Some people were absolutely horrified that this could even happen, while others were absolutely in awe and just wanted to know how they pulled this off. Again, I tend to find myself on the fence because I am fascinated, but also horrified by it, as I've mentioned. At this point, the heat was on. They knew that they wouldn't be able to drive a army truck and Land Rovers out of the farm. Way too suspicious because the train workers had definitely seen the trucks that they were driving. And Brian Field wasn't present at the actual robbery. So he went by the farm, picked up Roy, Bruce, and John. They went and got different cars and then drove back to the farm and picked everyone else up. Brian Field was also the person who had been tasked with finding someone to do a big cleanup on the farm, and a man known only as Mark was supposed to clean up the farm and then burn it to the ground. However, the robbers fled the farm early, like we talked about, and then on Monday morning, Charlie called Brian to make sure that the farm had been quote-unquote taken care of, i.e. burnt to the ground, and Brian was like, sure, 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 it's totally good, it's taken care of, no worries. Not so. They did not believe him, so they called a meeting with a few of the guys and Brian, and Brian was then forced to admit that the farm had not been burned down, nor had it been perfectly cleaned like they had talked about. In a documentary, Bruce's son Nick said, quote, The guy who was paid to basically go back to the farm and burn it down did a runner, end quote. Which, real quick, the expression did a runner is like my favorite British thing. I love it. I need to put that into my repertoire. 
And it has been said that during this little meeting, Charlie Wilson would have killed Brian with his bare hands right then and there if the other members had not held him back. By the time they were able to get to the farm to try to clean it up themselves, the police had already found it, and it had definitely not been wiped clean of all the evidence. They kind of did a quick wipe down themselves before they left, but not the crime scene cleanup it would require to clear all of the evidence and fingerprints. So our robbers are now finding themselves in even more hot water than they expected. And that is where we are going to pause until next episode. Next week, we are going to go over uh, the investigation, the arrests, life on the run for some of the robbers, the trial, and then some of the interesting theories surrounding this fascinating case. So make sure that you're subscribed so you don't miss part two, either on YouTube or wherever you get your audio podcasts. And once part two is up, I will have it directly linked in the description for this episode so you can easily find it. I can't stop thinking about this case. I'm so excited to talk to you about it and to hear your thoughts and opinions. Um, thank you so much for being here. And until next time, I guess don't plan any train heists. Okay, <laughs> bye.